Leadership. All my life, I've been fascinated by what makes a good leader. Are good leaders born or made? Can leadership be taught? I grew up in Arkansas. My journey took me to the East Coast, to medical school, to the Midwest, and now to the innovation heartland of Northern California. And after a year in which the whole world has endured crisis after crisis, I've thought even more about leadership, particularly how leaders help us navigate challenging times. That's why I decided the best thing to do was to go out and talk to leaders about leadership and let them speak for themselves. Hello, I'm Lloyd Miner, Dean of the Stanford School of Medicine, and welcome back to the Miner Consult. Now I'd like to welcome this week's prestigious guest, former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. What a career. She worked on the National Security Council when the Berlin Wall came down and helped then-President George H.W. Bush lock down the nuclear warheads of the former Soviet Union. Her leadership was forged in the fires of 9-11 when she served as the National Security Advisor. Then, at the height of the war on terror, she led the State Department, the first black woman in American history to serve as Secretary of State. Today, she leads Stanford's Hoover Institution, a public policy think tank focused on individual, economic, and political freedom. It's my privilege to welcome my colleague and friend, Condoleezza Rice. Condi, thanks so much for being with me today. Oh, Lloyd, it's great to be with you. I look forward to our conversation. Great, great. You, you have a fascinating life story. You grew up in Birmingham, Alabama at a time of incredible tension. The 16th Street Baptist Church bombing in 1963 was personal to you. It took the life of a little girl, a friend who'd played with dolls with you. No one was held accountable for that murder until 2001. How did this event and other childhood experiences shape you? And what did your childhood teach you about leadership? It's ironic, I think, but I believe that in some ways I was fortunate to grow up in a Birmingham that was so turbulent because uh, my parents and the community in which I grew up just surrounded us in love and expectation and a sense of possibilities. You're absolutely right that losing uh, Denise McNair, my kindergarten classmate, I have a picture, Lloyd, of my father giving her her certificate when she finished kindergarten. And by the way, Addie Mae Collins, one of the other little girls in that church, was in my uncle's homeroom at Bernetta C. Hill Elementary. So these were quite personal. Uh, and Yes, it was in some ways frightening, particularly at that particular time, but I just want to emphasize again, our parents in these little communities in Birmingham, uh, all of them educated, my parents were teachers, uh, my father was a high school guidance counselor, told us that it was faith, family, and education, and if you had an education, no one could touch you, and so their sense of endless possibility, I think, really was transmitted to us in a way that I wish we could transmit it to our kids today. Very, very well stated. And, you know, I grew up in Little Rock, and in 1971, I participated in the first round of court-ordered desegregation busing in Little Rock, and it was such an eye-opening experience to me. And also, as you described, such a hopeful experience about the future. I think the kids that were coming together, I mean, I, I had not been to school with, with black children, uh, because although 
Brown versus the Board of Education had outlawed segregation. Schools remained segregated because kids went to schools in their neighborhoods. Um, but there was such a sense of optimism and hope about the future that um, I hope we can captivate, you know, that that spirit moving forward. What what do you think are some of the keys of of moving our nation forward in a in a time when we we're fairly divided on a lot of different issues? One of the wonderful things about Americans is that we're actually impatient for change, and that's really terrific. But sometimes impatience runs over the uh, the progress that you've made. And I think particularly for our, our kids or for the students that we teach, uh, to remind them that we have come quite a long way. You went to, you were in Little Rock. You'd never had a black classmate until a quarter to busing. I went to, I was born in Birmingham. I didn't have a white classmate until we moved to Denver. And so we've come a very long way. And if we don't acknowledge that, even though we say and should say that we've got a long way to go, uh, we get into a kind of pessimism about what's possible. Yeah. But if you think about where we grew up and where we are now, optimism is really uh, the way that we should be. It doesn't mean that we don't have hard work to do. It doesn't mean that oh, we should accept the world as it is. We always have to try and look to the world as it should be. But it does mean that uh, human beings overcome a lot, and we should expect that we can overcome the differences and difficulties that we have now. That's really well stated. Connie, how is it that you've held on to your faith in institutions and, and you've led so many institutions? You know, many might have deviated from that. Uh, you talked a little bit about it, but can you describe more about why you have a passion and belief for leadership and the importance of institutions, uh, particularly in these times? Well, again, um, the sense of what has been possible because of these great institutions. James Madison famously said that if men were angels, we wouldn't need government. Well, I think you could say if men were angels, we wouldn't need institutions either. And in fact, uh, these institutions, the courts, the Constitution, voting, uh, are the way in which we express and get change in a more orderly fashion, where we know the rules of the game. And uh, that's really the, the uh, role that political institutions have to play. I think, Lloyd, I've also uh, experienced and therefore uh, been influenced by looking at people across the world who are just trying to get the very basic liberties that we enjoy, the right to say what you think, the right to worship as you please, the right to be free from the knock of the secret police at night, and to have the dignity that comes when people have to ask for your consent if they're going to govern you. And I've been in places where people are willing to die for those, uh, for those just basic liberties. And so I say to myself, we are so fortunate and now we have the task, we have the obligation to defend the importance of those institutions, but to use them for the change that we think necessary. And uh, if you go to any, to most places in the world, you'll come back thinking uh, we're, we're a pretty lucky bunch and we, uh, we don't have a right to, uh, to simply cast this aside. We have every obligation to make it work. So well stated. What what role do we as leaders have in earning back the trust that has been eroded in institutions and in leadership in general today? How can we help to restore that trust through our actions and through our approaches to leadership? 
Well, Lloyd, you know from the leadership positions that you've been in uh, that trust is, as George Schultz, my great friend, um, Hoover Institution fellow, Stanford faculty member, former Secretary of State, used to say trust is the coin of the realm. And uh, when you're a leader, uh, people have to trust you. And I always say that the first thing with trust is integrity. And so uh, it's actually a pretty simple definition. If you look in the mirror, are you asking people to do things that you yourself would not do? Then you are going to have a problem with integrity. Uh, secondly, you have to be good to your word. And uh, sometimes it's hard because you, you want people to feel good, you, but you really have to be true to your word. Uh, you can't be a gossip. Nothing breaks down an organization more quickly than particularly the leader whispering about people to other people. You, you really have to be transparent in important ways. And I think, Lloyd, you, uh, and I've watched you do it as uh, dean of the Stanford Medical School, particularly in this really tough time of COVID-19, you have to be able to listen. You have to be able to hear what people are trying to tell you, uh, rather than always being in transmit mode. It's very easy, easy, particularly in a crisis, to say, I know exactly what we need to do, and therefore I'm going to transmit what we need to do. Well, you need to sometimes step back a little bit and listen to what people are telling you about their concerns, about their fears, about their anxiety. Um, and so I've always thought that one of the most important things about being a good leader is to be a good listener. And then finally, seeing leadership characteristics in other people. Uh, you, you, nobody leads alone. We, we sometimes have this image of the leader as very far out in everybody's following. Well, actually, uh, as the organization gets bigger, that's not a very useful model. You need other leaders who are part of your team. And so um, I, I really do believe in building a team as a leader and then building trust with those people. If we can do that, then institutions will be inherently stronger and more robust. And then I think we can ask for the trust of people outside of them. On 9-11, you were the National Security Advisor. What did you and our nation's other leaders draw from to lead at such a tragic moment in history? It's, it was a very difficult time, um, and to be completely honest, I think we were disoriented for uh, several days after. Um, I remember going to the, um, the National Prayer Service on that Friday, and, and frankly, from Tuesday to Friday was just kind of a blur. And we went then to that service, and um, I saw people around us who were all pulling in the same direction. Uh, our, our values, our sense of patriotism all came to the fore. Uh, I remember the, the Marine Choir doing uh, the Battle Hymn of the Republic, and suddenly I felt uh, more uh, energized. And my point is, I, I realized that there were people that we could draw on as a country that we somehow weren't alone. And uh, that night, we went to Camp David, um, and we actually were singing uh, religious songs. It turns out that John Ashcroft, who was at the time was the Attorney General, is a very good gospel pianist. Now, Lloyd, you and I have played yes. together, Schumann, That's I believe. Right. You know that I'm not a gospel pianist. <laughs> I'm actually a really good you classical pianist. You are a wonderful pianist. classical pianist. So we just let John play, and the rest of us were singing. Uh, I think you you have to go to where your sources of strength are at times like that. And for me, 
faith was an important part of it. I'm a deeply religious person. I'm the daughter and the granddaughter of ministers. I had to go to my faith. I had to go to the sense that there were other teammates there, all the way up to the president, who had the same uh, the same desires to to keep us safe and wanted ways to do it. And I had to go to the spirit of the American people. On that same uh, drive to the National Cathedral that day, there was a man standing there on the street, and he had a sign. It said, God bless America, we will not be terrorized. Mm. I kept yeah. him in my mind's eye. I will never know his name. But he expressed for me better what America was about that day. And so you go to your sources of strength at times like that. 9-11 brought us together, and, and your leadership, the leadership of so many others, played a big role in bringing us together. COVID, a completely different type of crisis, of course, in terms of its origins. But COVID, I have the sense, in many respects, has divided us uh, in ways yes. that I, I would not necessarily have predicted. But what are your thoughts about that? Or is it that we're in a fundamentally different place in society today? Is it the nature of the threat from 9-11? Uh, what, what are the differences between the two crises? Both have been huge crises for our country um, and, of course, COVID for the world uh, and 9-11 for the world. But can you compare and contrast uh, 9-11 and, and COVID-19? Well, there, there are really, I think, three reasons that the uh, reaction was so different. One is the, natu- the nature of the crisis. Uh, when we were attacked on our territory first time since the War of 1812, <clears throat> there was a sense that they, they, meaning the terrorists, were attacking us and who we were. And that immediately drew us together. And so uh, this amorphous thing that was the virus uh, didn't have quite the same feel of drawing us together. And so, yes, the nature of the crisis was was different. Uh, there was no certainty, by the way, in either. Uh, people say, well, the certainty around 9-11. But I can tell you that in the days after 9-11, we didn't know where the next attack was coming from. We were pretty sure it was coming. And so the sense that you didn't have control was there in both crises. So I don't really think that's an explanation. But there is a second element to this. Uh, We have had since that 20 years, since uh, 9-11, an erosion in uh, trust in leadership and in expertise. And um, I think sometimes we, we tend to, when we are experts or we are leaders, to try to impart a, cert- a kind of certainty about what we know. And when then that certainty turns out not to have been quite right, there's a, a bit of an erosion in people's willingness to trust experts. So I remember, Lloyd, uh, another crisis that I dealt with. Um, we had, maybe nobody even remembers this, we had the mad cow yes. disease uh, outbreak. Right. And it was right around Christmas. And we decided right then the president would speak once. And after that, the Secretary of Agriculture would take over. I had the sense that in the COVID crisis, and President Trump was a different different person, I would have advised don't put him up there every day for a press conference because there was too much uncertainty. And every time he said something, he added to the uncertainty. And so you want your president to speak once and let the experts take the fall for what doesn't turn out to be right. And so I think that's one of the problems that we have. And then I think to experts, I would say, 
when you don't know, perhaps it's good to say you don't know instead of having that kind of certainty that then gets undone. And then there's one other overarching difference, social media. I am so glad that we didn't have to deal with social media and the, uh, the uh, misinformation that was starting to, and the disinformation, and uh, people just posting uh, crazy things on, on the internet. And then the fact that social media, which by the way, I, I love, but it has a tendency to divide. I go to my bloggers, I go to my websites, I go to my aggregators, I go to my cable news channel, and I never actually talk to people who may be seeing it differently. And so I think those were the differences in the crises. Uh, those I am not so concerned about. What I am, I am concerned about them, but I'm not as alarmed about them. What I am alarmed about is that COVID-19 showed that we are in many ways still two very different Americas. There was the America that was the laptop class. Uh, you and I never missed a beat in terms of being able to teach, in terms of being our, our colleagues could write their papers, could have their meetings. In some ways, it got easier. You didn't have to go out and get on an airplane uh, to go and see your colleagues. People who had to go to the shop floor or to the restaurant were unemployed. People had to go to work in your hospitals were terrified of what they were going to face. And I felt that the laptop class didn't have very much empathy for people who had to deal with the crisis differently. And that that is deeply troubling to me. I, I agree. I agree. What, what will it take to rebuild empathy in the laptop class? Uh, how do we go yeah. about doing that? We don't know each other. Yeah very well anymore as a, as a country. Um, we, you know, our, our schools uh, increasingly, uh, if you are of means, you'll move to a district where the schools are good and the houses are expensive. And who's stuck in failing neighborhood schools? Poor kids. Um, if you're really wealthy, maybe you'll send your kids to private schools. So we don't have that interaction anymore. Uh, if I think about um, the, the past, uh, we, we don't encounter health services in the same way uh, anymore. Uh, we don't, people don't go to national service or the military. That, that's become a class matter. So I've actually been an advocate of national service. Um, I don't care. You don't have to go to the military. Maybe you go to Teach for America. I, had, I will never forget when one of my students, a, a blonde kid, from uh, Pacific Palisades came in and told me that he joined Teach for America and he was going to the Mississippi Delta to teach. And I thought, oh boy, is he in for a surprise. But what a wonderful thing that he was going to go to the Mississippi Delta to teach. And so we need more ways of uh, bridging these uh, divides of class. And they're not necessarily even divides of race. Uh, sometimes they are, but very often they're more divides of class, and I think we need ways to, to bridge those. Very well stated. Recently you shared that you had zero desire to go back to Washington, D.C., and said it was time <laughs> to move on to a new generation of leaders. So why do you think it's time to make that transition, Condi? I, I think uh, that our, our leaders, uh, and I would count myself in this as somebody who won't go back, there's a certain weariness 
Um, there's a certain, I've seen it all, I've done it all. Um, and I think there is a, a generation that wants to take the stage. And uh, they should. Uh, they'll make their own mistakes. We made our share of them. They will come to their own conclusions about what works and what doesn't. We did that in our time. Uh, the problems um, and the the environment are so different. I didn't grow up, you didn't grow up with social media. Uh, I watch us old folks trying to deal with the, 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 <laughs> the implications of if I put it on Twitter, it's going to spread like welfare. And I, you know, they grew up in that environment. And so I'm not arguing that wisdom isn't important. It is. But it's also sometimes important to get to get fresh legs, let me put it that way. And um, I'm a little troubled that um, our leaders, particularly in Congress, uh, seem to believe that they need lifetime employment in the Senate and in the Congress. The founders actually never had that in mind. They expected the citizen politician. Um, you know, Lloyd, what they did was they created Washington, D.C. in a swamp between Maryland and Virginia, and they all went back to the state houses <laughs> where they thought the real action was. And they, they had to drag George Washington off of his farm to uh, be president again. And uh, there's, there's a comfort level in Washington of just being there so long and I really admired when senators or congresspeople say, you know, I'm going to go. I'm going to go back. I'm. I've done my part here. It's time to go back. And so, uh, term limits on the presidency have, I think, been a good thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know if I really would think of term limits, but I sure would like to think that people might have a life outside of Washington after they've served for a while. In thinking about this generational shift in leadership, how are the leaders of tomorrow going to be different than the leaders of the past in terms of personality, in terms of approach? Some of the leadership themes you've talked about, uh, how do you see those manifesting themselves in, in the emerging leaders that, that you work with and have gotten to know and are mentoring? Well, let me start with the good. Uh, this is the most public-minded generation that I've taught in the de- decades that I've taught at Stanford. They want to do something bigger than themselves. And I think if you look at young young mayors and young uh, people in state houses and the like, they have that same can-do, I want to do something bigger than myself. They, they've been steeped in, uh, we've got to do something on sustainability and saving the planet. They have been steeped in uh, something that uh, my parents would never have even dreamt of a world in which there wouldn't be prejudice, let alone want to work toward one. Uh, We were taught instead how to deal with prejudice. Uh, These young people want to overcome it. And so uh, their sensibilities are different. And I think that's that's great. As I said, they, you know, they grow up with some phone attached to their hands. I'm quite certain if you really want to solve a technology problem, find a 14 year old. (laughs) And so uh, they they are different in that way. The one the one downside to that is it's great to be in a hurry but uh, we've also given the indication that it's all right to be in a hurry and not have actually done your homework so I would say um, slow down know something before you uh, I I used to tell my classes Lloyd I I value your opinions but not your uninformed ones and uh, and there is a bit of 
of lacking of depth sometimes. Um, When you or I would write a term paper in college, we'd go to the Dewey Decimal System of Classification, we'd find the section, we'd go to the stacks, we'd wander around in the stacks, we'd find the books we needed. Now they just Google. And I'm, by the way, guilty of that too. If I want to know something, I just Google it. But the depth isn't there. And so getting these young folk who have this wonderful sense of possibility and what they need to do and want to do to slow down just a bit. And finally, I would say um, there's a troubling tendency in our uh, society these days to associate excellence with, um, with some of the worst characteristics like the lack of diversity or, uh, uh, or ethnic insensitivity. People of all races, all genders can be excellent. Absolutely. And to say that we're no longer going to have uh, tests for people or we're no longer going to have um, high-performing students in in schools be in accelerated classes. That's a disaster. Uh, The regression to the mean is not what we need. And it's a little bit, um, to to make a little bit of fun of it, you know, every kid got a a soccer trophy, whether they deserved it or not. Um, We have to make sure that that's not the message that we've sent to leaders because they're going to have to deal with the fact that uh, people have differing capabilities uh, if somebody's really accelerated, you want to do that. And then you want to bring everybody else up. You don't want to take those who are good at things and bring them down. And I think part of that, too, is is recognizing that it does take a village, right, in terms of, of people yes. with diverse interests, diverse talents, diverse skills, uh, which, you know, how do we develop career options uh, that, for example, don't involve a deep knowledge of programming or of, of other aspects of technology and, uh, and, and value, and value those. those and value right. those as much as we do the person who's a coder. Exactly. Uh, now, to be fair, I tell my students, you need to take at least one class that teaches you what coding is about because it's right. all around you. I don't need you to be a coder. I just need you to know something about it. But I, I agree. We, we have so many skills that are needed that don't even require the four-year degree. Mm-hmm. And so we ought to have options for people to train differently. I heard a very good presentation uh, by uh, someone here at Stanford not too long ago that we ought to stop talking about jobs and we ought to start talking about tasks and skills. Because when you say I'm hiring for a job, you have a tendency to resume check. Did this person have a BA? Did they have this much experience, et cetera? When you say skills, it might be a whole nother resume uh, pathway that took them to those sets of skills. And so we probably do need to think about the way that we are hiring people, training people, educating people. Kind of you mentioned before, but I want to return to it. You're an accomplished pianist. I had the privilege of performing with you uh, the Schumann fantasy pieces uh, for cello and piano. And can you talk about the role that music and piano has played in your life uh, from childhood to the present? Well, Lloyd, we both have, we have something in common, which is that you're, by the way, a very fine cellist. So, so we might have imagined ourselves as Emmanuel Axe and Yo-Yo Ma at some point. In the next slide. Uh, we're, we're, we're not. <laughs> so, uh, but, uh, I had ambitions to be a great concert pianist. I studied from the age of three. Uh, There was no doubt in my mind I was going to play Carnegie Hall. 
And then I went to the Aspen Music Festival School as a sophomore, uh, end of my sophomore year. I was a piano performance major. I met those 12-year-olds who could play from sight what it had taken me all year to learn. And I thought, find another major. <laughs> and fortunately, I wandered into a course in international politics that was taught by a man named Joseph Corbell. He was Madeleine Albright's father, by the way. And he turned me on to things diplomatic and Russian and international, and I'd found my second passion. But my first passion in music continues to serve me well, too. Um, I, I love the discipline of practicing and learning a piece to perform it uh, with you or with, with someone else. I love the fact that uh, I can get completely lost in my music. Uh, when I was the, in Washington as National Security Advisor and Secretary of State, I actually played in a chamber group. And uh, it was wonderful. They, the cellist who uh, was a very fine cellist lawyer would call me from time to time and he would say, we haven't heard from you lately. And I would say, well, you know, Bob, there's, there's a war in Lebanon. And he would say, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But can you play Thursday? These were people who really drew me out of whatever I was in. And so I think this ability to go someplace else in depth uh, is really very important for people in high-pressure situations. Uh, for me, it's always been sports with my father and music with my mother. And I'm just very grateful uh, of that. And I will say this to anybody who's listening to this podcast who might have a child who is trying to learn to play an instrument. Two pieces of advice. My mother who was also a musician, when I came to her at age 10 and said, I'm quitting, I'm tired of playing, she said, you're not old enough or good enough to make that decision. And I'm grateful to her every day that I kept playing. But there's another piece of it. Uh, you don't have to practice an hour or two hours a day when you're starting out. 15 minutes a day will do. It's more the consistency. So I tell my friends whose kids are rebelling against their lessons, just tell them to practice for 15 minutes and maybe you'll keep them playing until they're good enough uh, to play with the dean of the medical school for a, for a benefit. Great advice. Do you have a next major musical project you're working on? Well, I'm working on a, a couple. I uh, helped to found with the um, Muirstein Quartet, which is the in-residence quartet at, at Boston University, uh, a group, a, a program called Classics for Kids. We raise money to put instruments into schools and, and to underserved schools. And sometime in the spring or early fall, uh, we'll perform again together. And uh, most likely, uh, the uh, this time, the Franck Piano Quintet. Sure. We've performed Brahms and Dvorak Quintets. So that takes some work. Um, and I'm also going to perform the Schumann uh, the, the Schubert uh, Fantasy, which is a four-hands uh, piece uh, in April with another pianist also for a benefit. So I've got some gigs coming Fantastic. up, and uh, I haven't been practicing very much lately, so I'd better get at That's it. That's wonderful. Well, we look forward to those. You're, of course, also an avid sports fan and football fan and golfer. Um, can you describe your, your interest in sports and um, and, and also... you? You you started golf, uh, I, I believe, as secretary, uh, secretary of state, right? right. And yes. um, right. can you describe that process and also your your passion for for collegiate football and football in general? Yes, I'm an only child. 
It was music with my mother. My father was a football coach when I was born. I was supposed to be his all-American linebacker. So he decided to teach me about sports instead. And um, I was a competitive figure skater. I actually competed uh, at a reasonably high level as a skater. And I got a lot out of that experience. It was discipline. It was getting up at 5 o'clock in the morning. It was having a bad performance one night and having to get up and practice the next day. And uh, I learned a lot from sports. And my dad, uh, who was a very fine athlete, three-sport letterman in college, football, basketball, and tennis, uh, really nurtured my love of sports, both as a participant and as a uh, as an observer uh, or a fan. And uh, so I still am a big fan, but I've always had a sport that I played. After, after I realized, Lloyd, that figure skating was not an adult sport, you can't call somebody and say, let's go figure skating. I took up tennis and played that. And then on vacation in Washington, D.C. with my cousin, uh, the summer after I became Secretary of State, uh, her husband gave her golf lessons. He gave me buddy lessons so she would go, and I'd found a new passion in golf at the age of 50. So anybody who wants to take up golf, it's never too late. Um, I, I would go out whenever I can could as uh, secretary, which wasn't very often, but I figured if I could get the ball moving forward. When I came back to California, I would actually learn the game, and so I play quite a bit. Um, it, like music, is completely trans, uh, transforming and transporting. Uh, you can't really think about anything else. And oh, by the way, it was God's gift to, to social distancing as well, because you can't get too close to another golfer <laughs> unless you get hit with the ball or with a club. So, And it's outdoors in beautiful places. So it, too, has been a wonderful way to, to get away from things. A few years ago, there was a rumor that came out that the Cleveland Browns wanted to interview you to be their next coach. Now, what skills would you have brought to that job? I think uh, it could have been transformational. But what, what did you think about in terms of that opportunity? Well, the Sunday when I woke up and found out that the Cleveland Browns, quote, wanted to talk to me, which I think was always a garble. I think they wanted to talk to me as a fan. <laughs> um, I, I just said that the only real skill that I would bring to coaching was a kind of devil-make-hair belief uh, that when you are on the football field, uh, you you just go for it. I, I'm actually someone who loves the game. My dad taught me the X's and O's of the game, but I was a Cleveland Browns fan um, for from the time I was five years old. And the thing that I would have brought most was loyalty sure. because they have not won a championship since I was eight years old. And yet I hang in there with them every Sunday from the 0-16 year that went 1-31, they're finally a decent football team again. And so um, I think most sports fans will tell you there's nothing more fun than when your team is winning. Uh, so uh, that that's the great thing about being a fan, not a coach. Right. Just, just in closing, what, what do you see are the comparisons between an effective leader of something as complex as a football team either collegiate or, or certainly professional, and being a leader of an academic institution or a governmental leader, what are the similarities and the differences of the approaches to leadership and the characteristics that, that you would draw out in your experience in all those arenas? 
Well, the wonderful thing that I love about football, and I I served on the college football playoff committee for several years, uh, choosing the four teams that would be in the playoffs, and we had a lot of coaches on that committee, and uh, I watched them and what they what they looked for, and uh, the the wonderful thing about uh, football, and it's a kind of metaphor, is that uh, it is a team game, it is a strategic game, but what you have to count on is that everybody's going to do their job. The quarterback can't be worrying about whether or not the guard is doing uh, his job. The guard can't be worrying about whether the tight end is doing his job. Everybody has to do their job. And that's what you want as a leader. You want a team in which everybody is responsible for what they have to do. And they're not looking over their shoulder at the other people and pointing fingers. They're doing their job and doing it well. And I think if you can bring that to any team that you're building and the sense that we're all in this together. Now, the big difference is in football, you've got the three and a half or four hours or whatever it is to get that accomplished. As a leader in anything else, you have a longer period of time to get it done, but you can't waste time. You do have, uh, as a leader of another organ- of an organization, you have to have the vision, you have to have the strategy for achieving it, and you have to have a sense of urgency because all of us are leading in circumstances these days uh, in which change is coming very, very rapidly indeed, and you don't want to be behind the power curve. Condi, thank you so much. And thank you for listening to The Minor Consult with me, Stanford School of Medicine Dean Lloyd Minor. I hope you enjoyed today's insightful discussion with former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice. We'll be back next week as we continue to look at leadership during a once-in-a-generation crisis. Please send your questions by email to theminorconsult at theminorconsult.com and check out our website, theminorconsult.com, for updates, episodes, and more. To get the latest episodes of The Minor Consult, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate the podcast five stars. Your feedback helps make this podcast happen. Thank you so much for joining me today. I look forward to our next episode. Until then, stay safe, stay well, and be kind. Be kind.